Are you curious about what it takes to build a group practice? Or maybe you're already a few practices in and you want to learn what you need to do to ensure your success. Make a point to join us in Fort Lauderdale on March 30th through April 1st for our pinnacle event called Scaling from Clinician to CEO. This event is built to bring you the in-depth educational resources to help you create success at this next phase of your journey. Click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the event itself and to see an overview of the agenda. We're limiting the event to 75 people and we expect it to sell out. So please register soon. We hope to see you in Fort Lauderdale on March 30th for Scaling from Clinician to CEO. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to season two, episode four of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, an episode we're calling Key Banking Metrics and What They Mean. And if we're we're talking about banking, you know that my partner, DeWalker Sinha, is gonna be joining me behind the mic. It's time to caffeinate up. We're into 2022. It's off and running with a furious start, and it's all about banking. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Once again, thanks everybody for joining us on the show today. As I teased in the introduction, I am joined by my partner once again behind the microphone, DeWalker Sinha. DeWalker, you want to say hello to everybody in the audience? Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. So this is uh, another podcast around a subject that is truly mission critical to building a successful group practice, and it's banking. Banking is our theme for the first quarter, and candidly, this is a subject that probably 90% of the people we work with, I'll gingerly say they don't get it right, right out the chutes. Um, And it can create major problems uh, in terms of scaling, growing and scaling an organization. And banking is something that you really need to get right early on. If you are able to get it right early on, it costs you less in the long run in terms of breakup fees but also the hassle of changing from one lender to another, uh, we can hopefully help uh, help you get around that. So today's episode is about banking metrics, the key metrics at least, and really what they mean for our audience, how to interpret them, um, how to calculate them even, uh, and how banks continue to make lending decisions. You know, one of the first things to Walker that we see um, with prospective clients and clients alike is that they get cut off by their primary lender um, hitting the debt funding wall. We talked about that in a prior episode, um, but why don't we start today's episode maybe at a high level, and we'll talk about that subject of why the banks won't lend to me anymore 
and, and how a bank makes lending decisions. You, you spent your career as a, a healthcare banker, and I like to tell people you're a recovering healthcare banker now, but why don't you take this one from the top in terms of how banks make lending decisions? Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, on the bank side, uh, there's uh, there's called three C's of lending, five C's of lending. Um, but we'll kind of go through the three basic thing, uh, C's of lending, which stand for credit, collateral, and capacity. Um, we're not going to focus a lot on the first two, but I'll, I'll kind of highlight what they essentially mean. Uh, credit is your credit score. It's how you've historically paid back other people and the uh, presumed likelihood of your ability to pay back in the future. So you know, some people say credit stands for character. Um, there's different ways to look at it. The other um, uh, C is called collateral. And the collateral could be, you'll see banks have asset-based lending, commercial banking, consumer banking. And in a part of that banking division, they're trying to tell you what type of collateral they may use to, to, to leverage their product. Um, so in uh, collateral in the healthcare industry, maybe on the mortgage industry might be a house and the, in the healthcare industry, maybe a commercial real estate loan, which is the collateral or a healthcare practice, which is the collateral. So uh, different uh, institutions value different collaterals at a different uh, risk level. So some banks will do cash flow-based lending, which is the banks you want to be working with in our space, uh, versus an asset-based lending uh, company. Uh, cash flow-based lending, meaning it's all goodwill. It's uh, the cash you bring in, the multiple of EBITDA. Uh, some of the things you might have heard from us in our previous po podcast, and that gives us the, the, the collateral component of it. So it's either the healthcare practice, which is cash flow-based, or the commercial real estate, which houses the healthcare practice, which will be lended against. And the last one, which we're going to put a lot of our focus on on this and other podcasts, is going to be capacity. Um, and capacity is a potential indication of somebody's ability to pay, <clears throat> pay the loan back in the future. Like credit tells you what happened in the past, how you paid other people in the past, and what is a presumed likelihood of you paying in the future. For example, if you had an 800 credit score when you applied for the bank loan, you paid your in, uh, previous lenders very well. You have a pretty broad, diverse credit portfolio, meaning you might've had installment loans uh, for in the form of car loans, mortgages, credit cards in the form of revolving or home equity lines, which is another revolving. And you probably have a fairly lengthy credit history. So it's telling an institution over an extended period of time, you've had a diversified credit portfolio, a diversified credit limit, and you've paid people back. And uh, that whole saying that history tends to repeat itself, um, I think to some level, institutions look at that and say, okay, if you've paid people back in the past, you're more than likely to pay people in the future. But that is not a, 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 the only validation point. So banks start looking at the capacity component as a second validation point. And the second val uh, uh, capacity component they're looking at is going to be, one could be liquidity. And liquidity, personal liquidity, business liquidity. Um, if anything, COVID um, showed us in 2020, and I know we're still going through remnants of that in process today, <clears throat> but it, it did reinforce um, the need for our society 
to have good cash uh, cash reserves. Uh, and good cash reserves in the form of, of business cash flow, or business reserves, uh, and personal cash flow. So you're on the podcast, a uh, good rule of thumb is on a personal uh, reserve standpoint, I, mean, I recommend having six months of your personal living expenses um, in reserves, minimum. So if you're used to making 10000 a month uh, after tax, um, uh, after all your, you know, then you should have $60,000 in your bank account. Yes, it's going to probably earn you 0.015% annual percentage yield. Um, yes, it's going to have very low returns for you. Uh, but that's something that you know I would recommend. <clears throat> the other is going to be business cash reserves. And that's going to be at, at least three months of operating capital and cash reserves. And let me help people understand how to calculate that in their in their operations. So if we have a business that grosses a million dollars in revenue, um, and let's say they are operating at a 20% EBITDA, after all clinical compensation, CEO salary, all those things, then they have an overhead of about $800,000. Now that overhead includes the salary of our principal doctor partner. He or she may be practicing clinically or not. Uh, but they might be drawing out some salary. So include that as an expense. Your salary as a CEO is an expense of the business and should be an expense of the business if you plan correctly and run a business effect efficiently. So in this case, $800,000 is the operating uh, uh, expense of the business times three, $2.4 million in the business. That's a lot of money. A lot of you may be thinking, okay, I don't have that today. How do I get there? Um, I have 500,000, I'm running a you know, 10 or $12 million business. I have a million dollars. But that's the plan you need to be working on is, and, and over the next 24 months or 36 months, how do you build that cash reserves? And there's a process to do it without compromising significantly personal lifestyles. You might need some personal lifestyle changes. That you know, cash liquidity is very important. Now, banks look at traditionally 5% to 10% of your total lending exposure as cash reserves. So if you had a $12 million operating company and you were looking for $5 million loan, then some banks will look for 250, some will look for 500,000. So if you're meeting our guidelines of $2.4 million, you will be in a very well-capitalized position going into the, the bank's risk model. So that's, that's liquidity. Um, and there's, that's a process we work through with our clients on cash flow management, cash forecasting to, to get there. The other aspect is going to be leverage. Um, so leverage is um, essentially funded debt to EBITDA. So again, $10 million business, if it's operating at a $2 million EBITDA level, 20%. Well, you know, if you're looking at leverage ratios, if you're looking for a loan for $4 million from the bank, this is exclusive of real estate debt. Then you're looking for two times leverage ratio. You know, or if you're looking for six million, you're looking for three times leverage ratio. If you're looking for eight million, you're looking for four times leverage ratio. Um, and that's kind of tied to loan to revenue. Now, you know, some banks, if you go into the private practice space, uh, which is you know sub two, three million dollars in lending exposure, um, you know, those institutions lend you 80, 85% of revenue. Um, and the, the assumption is that those businesses are operating at a 20 to 25% EBITDA 
or they're pulling out, if you look at ADA statistics, 33% of top line revenues cash flow, which is owner's cash flow. So they'll lend you typically three times owner cash flow. Or if they're looking at a, a, at a debt to EBITDA leverage, they're probably lending you about four times debt to EBITDA on the business. Uh, and that's, you know, if you've heard our previous podcast, that's across the spectrum, even going into true middle market, four times seems to be the upper end of the limit. Um, and everybody wants to stay around the three to four times. So that's your leverage ratio. That's kind of uh, connecting the debt to EBITDA, loan to revenue. You know, if you go in the middle market space with some banks, they'll say, we'll lend you 50 to 60% of revenue. And again, their 50 to 60% of revenue is their assumption is the businesses running in their platform are 15 to 20%. EBITDA, so again, they're three to four times EBITDA. So all these dots are interconnected in the business. That's a that's a super overview, and and you went kind of long and pretty deep on that, but I know that's super valuable to to our audience. So there there are a couple of things on this. The way the uh, people who are listening to this are probably thinking through it, and and there are a couple of additional aspects for them to keep in mind at at what I would say is maybe a higher level. So you know when you went through your example and and you talked about million dollars in revenue. Uh, that's per month, and the eight hundred thousand uh, dollars in terms of uh, um, operating ex- overhead rate, operating expenses, yielding a two point four million dollar number to to keep on the sidelines. Um, obviously, a number like that strikes our audience as as being large and excessive, and and potentially it is when compared with the five percent to ten percent that a bank's going to look for. But let's think about it from a growth capital standpoint. So the first thing is. Having a lot of uh, cash on the sidelines sends a signal to your lender that you are conservative in nature, that you're not only relying on the bank's funds availability to grow your business, and furthermore, that you're not stripping all of the cash out of the business to fund a lavish lifestyle. That's a terrible signal to send to a banker because what they don't want to uh, run the risk of drawing the conclusion on is that you've got a lavish lifestyle that has absolutely no margin for error. Your lifestyle is dependent upon taking the cash out of the business, and the bank is the one funding the growth only. If you have three months' worth of operating cash reserves and you're not living to the maximum um, uh, amount on a personal level, now you've got flexibility. Yes, you're using bank funds to to buy or build practices, or maybe make capital equipment reinvestment, um, uh, you know, capex uh, in the business on an annual basis. But when and where necessary, you have available cash reserves to to supplement that availability of debt reserve. And and I think that's a, a critical signal to send to a, a lender. It gives you better peace of mind that you can withstand a a potential economic downturn, slight economic downturn in the business and and not go up under, but that you have an ample fallback position and that flexibility creates more opportunity for you when and where you want to execute on it. So I think that the cash reserves piece is uh, is really critical to a mindset shift for the people who are uh, in the audience listening to this. And, and I'll tell you with some degree of candor that even though our business is different than a group healthcare practice, group dental practice, DeWalker and I approach our business the same way from a cash reserve standpoint. So we want to make sure that we create flexibility 
uh, on our end and, and the ability to, to make moves strategically when and where uh, it's important. So um, the, the ratios and numbers are slightly different, but the principles are the same for us. So, you know, I want to I want to dig into one thing real quick that's sort of an interesting uh, ratio. And you touched on it, the, the loan to revenue piece. When you're looking at a solo practice, um, you know, and, and we say that a, a typical solo practice by listed by a typical broker is or transition specialist is probably going to value somewhere between 60 to 80% of collections. Do you want to talk a little bit about loan to revenue, the way the bank looks at it? Because I think it creates kind of a a glass ceiling or an arbitrary cap on that, the way we see uh, solo practice valuations in the market? Uh, yeah. So uh, in the private practice, solo practice space, uh, and what I just kind of defined that is many one single practice uh, that's being um, transacted upon. We tend to see that the, the valuations that are traditional and you can go to the Goodwill registry and different you know, uh, third-party resources, you'll see data points that are reflecting around 60 to 80% of revenue. Uh, some of it has to do with demand. And I definitely can see that if in a very rural market, um, you will see higher profitability just because of labor cost and real estate costs might be lower. But you'll see those practices go on the market for 60% of re- revenue. And those practices very well may be um, running at 20 to 25% EBITDA very comfortably and uh, even 30% in some rural markets. So you'll see the debt to EBITDA or loan to revenue be two times. Uh, that being said, the ability to recruit doctors in that market and uh, ongoing operations for talent might be concerned. And again, those are reasons the valuations may go down. But how banks are lending on a practice is driving how valuations or practices are being sold at. Because in the private practice space, you know, if you're going to John Doe, I'm not going to reference bank, but if you're going to John Doe banks and they're one of the top 10 banks in the US and the bank tells you, um, you know, we'll lend you 70% of revenue or 80% of revenue, uh, the normal assumption could be from a, a borrower's perspective is, is a practice not worth it. Uh, am I overpaying for it? So I, I do think there's some influence from lending to help manage uh, expectations or valuations in the space. Um, that being said, uh, you know they're they're trying to tie down to this free cash flow and and all those things. And what tends to be is past eighty percent of revenue or past ninety percent of revenue. Uh, just like a, a, a we could look at valuations in the DSO space it does start to economically put some pressure on the doctor. Uh, and the doctor that's typically buying that practice, they may be in debt of two hundred dollars to $500,000, depending on the, the school they went to and if they went to any you know, uh, postgraduate uh, additional training out there. So again, for the doctor that's I, completely compassionate to the bank's viewpoint of, hey, at 90% of revenue or 100% of revenue, you know, the deal may not cash flow. And I think that's an indication of multiple things, not just the ability of the practice to pay back the debt. One could be the practice does not have the ability to pay back the debt. You know, it's not meeting the, you know, practice fixed charge coverage ratio or the global debt service coverage ratio of the business. And we can kind of go into that here in a little bit. 
But that also has to do with the ability of the, the borrower profile of the doctor that, you know, do they have mortgage? What does their mortgage payment look like? Do they have car loans? What do their car loans look like? Where, which school did they go to? How much student loan do they have? Are they on income-based repayment? Are they getting a full payments on that? There's multiple variables from a borrower's lens, uh, from a bank's lens that drives that decision process. But banks in the private practice space do tend to dictate valuation or drive in a significant influence on the valuation of private practices. Uh, and I think for that reason, I think you're starting to see some private practices even look at smaller groups, not necessarily go to the private equity back groups, but even look at smaller groups in the in their local geography to partner up with. Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting point and where we kind of find ourselves in, in the acquisition uh, market overall or the transition market, if you want to call it that. Because, you know, banks aren't stupid. They can do the analysis. They understand how it cash flows and how it doesn't. They have their credit boxes that they need to, to operate in. But the brokers themselves that list the practices aren't stupid either. A, a broker wants to get paid. And they're typically not going to list a practice for sale above a threshold that a bank would approve the deal because that's going to be another point of jeopardy that the broker doesn't uh, control. So if a broker wants to transact the business and they want to get paid, then they're going to list the price where they know a bank will fund it and a borrower can probably qualify for it. And that does create, at least in the doctor-to-doctor -doctor transaction world, a bit of a, call it a glass ceiling or an arbitrary threshold or a valuation cap, or you can call it whatever you want to, but it's a it's a different context in the group practice market. And I think for the a lot of the entrepreneurs in the audience who are looking to build a group, this is one of those salient points around the ability to calculate um, uh, you know, valuation from an EBITDA multiple context and relate it back to valuation from a percentage of revenue or percentage of collections context, and obviously understand it from a leverage ratio standpoint, from a funded debt to EBITDA ratio, the way their, their lender calculates uh, their borrowing capacity. So you touched on um, something called global debt service, excuse me, easy for me to say, global debt service coverage ratio and practice fixed charge coverage ratio. Those are two uh, wonky bank uh, ratios, but they impact our audience's ability to continue drawing on funds. Do you want to slice and dice those for us? Sure. Um, so let, let's let's talk about global debt service coverage. Because I think that probably applies to most audience members that are you know looking for credit exposure sub 10 to 20 million. Um, and that exposure level is typically going to be personally guaranteed. So um, we can go into that. And then above 20 million, you know, we're starting to do transactions for uh, in that space of, you know, uh, uh, middle market, you know, sponsor finance, uh, family offices, things like that, uh, where, you know, practice fixed charge coverage ratio is more applicable. And then, and then more importantly, also the debt to EBITDA becomes more uh, important as far as the leverage ratio. So in a global debt service coverage ratio, what the bank's looking for is uh, what is the, the, the total available free cash flow after all expenses being paid, personal and business. And the reason the word, you know, 
is is global. It's global is looking at the full viewpoint of the deal. In a in a sub twenty million dollar transaction, you may be personally guaranteeing it. So it's not just the ability of the business to pay back the debt. If it was just the business, then we look at practice fixed charge coverage ratio, and say, okay, for every dollar in expense that is out there, including the new bank loan payment, how much is the cash flow available? And usually, what the banks are looking for is on a one one to one two practice fixed charge coverage ratio. That means let's just look at that for example. If a business has hundred thousand dollars in expenses, including the loan payment for the bank. That means the the business has to bring in $120,000 out there. So that's or $110,000 out there. So what the bank has is about a 10 to 20% margin or error. Okay, that's the practice fixed charge coverage ratio. And a lot of this came out of the 2008 economic financial crisis where banks didn't do a lot of stress testing. and stress testing is really what this, you know, one-one uh, fixed charge coverage ratio, one-one or one-two means, is that the depending institution they're looking for a ten to twenty percent coverage for stress testing. So there's an event like COVID, there's another housing crisis or some other um, impact that is you know, going to happen on a on a global macro level. That you know, are we are we creating policies within a bank? That provide us some level of of comfort, of some regression in revenue, and you know the the business still has some reasonable ability to pay back the debt. So that's practice fixed charge coverage ratio or business fixed charge coverage ratio. Then you start going towards global debt service coverage ratio, and global debt service coverage ratio takes the same basic principles, but now it adds back personal income and personal expenses. So let's let's take the, the same thing for example. Let's say a business is uh, throwing off about a hundred thousand dollars in revenue per month. Uh, so it's about a one point two million dollar business. Um, and let's say that's a doctor working in the practice. And if you're, you're a doctor working in the practice, you know you might be pulling out. You know if you're running at a you know the ADA statistics of you know thirty three percent, you might be pulling out thirty three thousand dollars a month in owner cash flow out of that business. So you're effectively pulling out about $400,000 in, in uh, annual cash flow out of the practice, which is 33,000 times 12 is roughly about $400,000. In that case, we know that the, the borrower is pulling out $400,000. So what the bank will do is, okay, we have $400,000 available and Dr. Perrin Desports is personally guaranteeing the loan. Now, what does his lifestyle look like? Um, and so what kind of house does he have? What kind of car does he have? You know, what, does he have any credit card payments? Does he have any student loan payments? What are the obligations out there? So in this case, if, you know, the borrower has a $3,000 mortgage and a $1,000 card payment, and then he has, let's say, a $4,000 student loan payment, the, the bank starts adding all those things up and says, okay, in this situation, you know, Dr. Desport's pulling out $400,000, his monthly obligations on a personal level including student loan debt, is $10,000. So that's about $120,000, okay? Our loan to him is you know, $800,000. And on a 10-year loan, depending on interest rates, let's say it's about $9,000 a month, which is $108,000 a year. So now we have $10,000, which is $120,000 there. We have an additional $108,000 in business debt service. 
So let's call this rounded up a little bit. So it's uh, another 110,000. So you have $230,000 in total obligations. Okay, that are fixed, that are outstanding. Then the institution might put in some kind of a living expense analysis and say, well, if Dr. Desport's making $400,000, he's probably spending $40,000 in living expenses. That could be cell phone, car insurance, you know, if you're sending your kids to private school. These are all things that the bank will look at. So now we have the $120,000 in fixed uh, debt obligations, $110,000 in our bank loan, where the bank making the loans, we're at. $230,000. And then we have approximately $40,000 in, you know, in um, um, living expenses. So that, that puts us right at $270,000 on somebody that's making um, $400,000. Okay. Then we're going to see after taxes, you know, let's say he's paying, he's at $300,000, you know, because we, the $100,000 goes to taxes. Okay. So now the bank's going to say, okay, you know, we have $300,000 in free cash flow available. And we have $270,000 in obligations going out. We have a fixed charge coverage ratio, global debt service coverage ratio of 1.1. And if the bank's requirement was 1.1, they would make the loan. But in the private practice, sub, you know, sub $3 million, sub $3.5 million lending space, the fixed charge coverage ratio requirements for most banks are going to be 1.2. And, you know, and you start going to the lower middle market, middle market space, that fixed charge coverage ratio becomes 1.3 to 1.4. So very important to kind of think through um, if you're looking for lending capital, you know, with Polaris or anybody else out there directly, you know, what is your total lifestyle look like? A lot of these things are interconnected, right? So if you're saving a lot of money in personal liquidity, you probably don't are not over leveraged personally, don't have higher living expenses. So as I said earlier, a lot of these uh, ratios and key performance indicators you know, that we're looking at are interconnected and one tends to support the other. So people that have good liquidity tend to have good EBITDA, tend to have very good debt service coverage ratio, tend to have very good practice fixed charge coverage ratio. Now, if somebody has low liquidity, that necessarily does not mean the other, okay? But it kind of gives you an indication of where things will be. Great information. And, and, you know, guidance also on both a personal and a professional level, the way we run our lives and the way we run our businesses, um, that is really good food for thought. The maybe last piece that I'll put a bow on this and we can wrap up this episode is that, you know, for our audience out there, uh, they're going to be personally guaranteeing almost all the loans until their business hits probably four to $5 million in EBITDA. So this is something when we start talking about coverage ratios and liquidity and leverage and all this other kind of stuff. These are the ways the banks make lending decisions to you. And until your business can generate probably in the neighborhood of $4 million in EBITDA, you're not going to be able to shift to something called a corporate guarantor status. And we'll talk corporate guarantors way down the line, but suffice to say, today's episode um, is uh, is a lot of food for thought, probably one that a lot of people will uh, want to go back and, and listen to. Um, and suffice to say, if you do have uh, questions about the subject matter at all on today's show, feel free to drop me or DeWalker a line. Happy to uh, answer your questions on a one-off or even answer them on an upcoming show. You can reach me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com or you can reach DeWalker directly at DeWalker at 
polarishealthcarepartners.com and DeWalker is D-I-W-A-K-A-R. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. So before we wrap things up today, I want to take a minute and answer a question uh, submitted from the audience, a periodontist here in North Carolina named Steve Ensayak. And um, I really appreciate him sending in a, a good question from a recent podcast episode where he asks, um, when discussing affiliations, you mentioned avoiding a duct tape DSO. What are the key characteristics that separate a duct tape DSO from one where the primary strategy is affiliations, where they may be uh, multiple majority or minority owners and practices? Um, and it's a really insightful question, and I, I appreciate him asking it, which is why I'm going to reference it on on the show today. Um, and, and I can't <laughs> I can't remember which episode this came out of, so forgive me, probably a couple of weeks back by the time you're listening to this, but here goes. So first things first, what is, when we say duct tape DSO, what does that mean? Um, we talk about valuations a lot in the marketplace, and my God, we we're talking about all, uh, them frequently uh, through the end of last year due to the M&A activity. And you know, we talk about comparing and contrasting valuations from a practice level to uh, more of an enterprise level and the, the what you call arbitrage, the increase in EBITDA multiple from a one or a two uh, location group to maybe 10 to 12 location group. Understandably, uh, larger size and volume of EBITDA influences the multiple several turns uh, typically, and, and that's the arbitrage phenomenon. So when we say duct tape DSO, um, what we're really referencing is this thought process that goes through a lot of uh, dentist minds. And, and the thought process is as follows, that, you know, hey, I've got a successful practice. I'm going to call some of my study club colleagues or dental school colleagues or local area colleagues or something like that. And, and we're all going to go to market together. And where in isolation, my practice might fetch uh, a 5x multiple if I get 10 of my uh, best buddies to, to club up and go to market together, maybe we can get 10 times or more for it because the EBITDA volume will be a lot higher. Yeah, the thought process being that the EBITDA volume would be higher, would command a higher multiple is accurate but the the impact and the way it plays out is not. And the reason for that is simply that, that enterprise level groups and private equity groups are not stupid. When they look at 10 different practices, all generating, let's say $400,000 uh, in EBITDA, and they look at all 10 of them and they say, okay, that's $4 million in EBITDA, that looks really attractive. Is that one transaction or 10? Is that one due diligence process or 10? Is that one integration process or 10? You know, is it one practice management software or 10? Is it one common format accounting uh, profit and loss statement tax returns uh, or 10? So you can say we're going to club up and go to market together um, to get a higher multiple, but it really doesn't play out that way. And when we say duct tape DSO, it's, it's really the euphemism that somebody's wanting to club up with a handful of other practices, 
wrap a bunch of duct tape around it, call themselves a DSO and go to market for a sale opportunity. That is significantly different than an affiliation concept. An affiliation concept is one that um, has a lot, and I stress a lot, of legal uh, ramifications and permutations to it. Common operating agreement, management services agreement between the, the group practice DSO and the affiliate practice uh, for administrative services. There's drag along, tag along rights on the uh, buy sell piece of it. Um, common format operating agreement, um, maybe not changing of software, uh, but um, employment agreements, uh, post uh, sale continuity agreements, all that kind of stuff from a legal context gets very complicated very quickly. Uh, and that's why in an affiliate arrangement, um, uh, the, the legal construct is mission critical to say the least. In a duct tape DSO, there's, there's no common legal agreement that binds any of those 10 practices together, which is why it's 10 separate transactions essentially. Um, but from an affiliation standpoint, to unlock the value of the affiliate practice for both the DSO and the affiliate himself or herself, um, there is uh, an increase in valuation multiple. It does translate all the way down to the affiliate practice for sure. But there are a lot of legal agreements that back it up that, that make it all conducive to a collective exit. So I think it's a, a super good question from Steve, and I appreciate him. Um, submitting it um, because I think it's a point of clarification that um, relative to the M&A activity and valuation multiples um, is is really pertinent to a lot of what we're seeing right now. So thanks, uh, Steve, for sending that, that one along and let me share it with the, uh, the marketplace. If you're interested in learning more about um, affiliations, the, uh, legal agreements, the affiliate relationship, how how affiliations is different from mergers, how affiliations is different from acquisition with an equity role. You know, I encourage you to take a look at our masterclass uh, on mergers, acquisitions, and affiliation. That's a small format group class, usually about 10 people in the room. It's a very narrow subject matter. It's super deep and very intense. Um, the dates coming up are February 17th and 18th here in Charlotte. We will refresh that class and probably run it again in the late spring or early summer. We don't have the dates down yet on that. The intent from me and DeWalker is to, um, you know, have a couple of different areas of subject matter on master classes and, and kind of rotate them around on about a once a quarter basis. The next one after mergers, acquisitions, and affiliations in February is going to be um, the uh, uh, excuse me, de novo execution class on March 10th and 11th. So stay tuned for uh, for that. If you're a, a de novo fan, we think it'll be equally impactful and we're looking forward to doing that one. We've been wanting to do that one for a while too. Before I wrap up the show, I also want to do a real quick book review for everybody. This is um, uh, something I don't do that often, but you know, around the first part of the new year, uh, a lot of us go through strategic planning for the, the year. Uh, DeWalker and I do that as well. Uh, and we do that with our consulting clients. Um, and I finished a book um, over the holidays sometime called Blue Ocean Strategy. This is a book that came out maybe as much as a decade ago. It's been updated multiple times. Uh, and the, the author's names are Chan Kim, K-I-M, and Renee Moborn. 
M-A-U-B-O-R-G-N-E, and it's called Blue Ocean Strategy. You've probably heard the phrase before, even if you've never read the book. It, it reads like an MBA textbook. I'm not going to lie. It's a challenge to get through. It's really thick. It's heady concepts that are not first nature, and they're, they're challenging to wrap your head around. But the reason I wanted to share it is because it, it is a book that makes you think about strategy and about what we do and our approach to the marketplace. The other thing I, I wanted to bring up is that when you talk about blue oceans, you try to, to think about competitive strategy from a standpoint of tapping into a market where there is little to no competition and occasionally where a market doesn't even realize that it needs your service. If you think about um, Steve Jobs and creating the the iPod, uh, the iPhone, which had the iPod in it and the internet device and email and all that, you know, was really a market creator. If you think about Henry Ford and, you know, that, that old quote that says, if I asked the market what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. Um, and I think that's very illustrative. If you think about a, a company like Cirque du Soleil, uh, in terms of circus acts that um, combine circus without the animals and high drama theater uh, was really a market creator. That's a lot of what Blue Ocean Strategy is about. And as I read it, I thought about mine and DeWalker's business from the, the Blue Ocean that we're constantly striving to create for ourselves. But I also thought about it from the context of um, the people in this audience. And, you know, it's tough to do that in a uh, in a healthcare services environment. That being said, I've had the privilege of spending a day with a couple of entrepreneurs recently in Discovery Day formats, where um, one of them uh, is a a sleep and sleep apnea TMJ type of a business um, that is incredibly compelling. That's absolutely creating new market space. Uh, he's a dentist, obviously, um, and then another that's a pediatric dentist. Um, uh, that's really pushing the envelope on tongue ties and tongue tie centers. And, and I think those are just two illustrations that hit me like a ton of bricks over the last couple of weeks about people who really are pursuing a blue ocean strategy in a healthcare services environment that really caused me to look at all of your businesses a little bit differently. So I figured I'd do a, a quick book report not even a book report, but just talk about it from a, a real high level in terms of some client experiences that I had lately. So hopefully that's worth something to you. If it isn't, you're not paying anything for this podcast anyway. So, you know, free advice is what you pay for it, right? So I hope you had uh, fun on today's show. I know that I did. I really appreciate my partner, DeWalker, joining me on it. He's just such a wealth of knowledge, oh, period. But obviously, as it relates to banking specifically, and I know you all get a lot out of that. Um, if you are getting a lot out of uh, the podcast, I encourage you to please leave us a, a rating or a comment or a compliment or something on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It does help us with SEO and other marketing aspects, and we certainly appreciate it. Like I said, if you do have questions or comments and you want to submit them to me, please feel free, feel free to do so directly. You can reach me at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.